But, you know, from 2030 onwards, right, as India then goes from $4,000 to let's call it $8,000 or $9,000 per capita uh, from 2030 to 2040, uh, what we are going to see is not just level of innovation in terms of company creation, user growth, um, et cetera, but we are actually going to see monetization happen at hyper, hyper scale, right? So 2009, uh, China crossed $4,000 per capita. Alibaba's GMB went up $50 billion in one year, right? So I think, I think you know, in the next decade, we will see companies go from, you know, it'll be very normal to see a company go from zero to $100 million of revenue in one year, right? Founding to $100 million of revenue in one year. Deep conversations about what really matters with the best minds in business, startups, sports, music, and many more. This is the Best in Class podcast. So Rajan, uh, thanks for making time for me. Uh, this is a wonderful gift that you have given me, so I'll make sure that I use it well. I, it's it's always wonderful to talk to you. I've had the pleasure of working with you before at Google. Uh, and, and now, uh, this time, I'm going to focus a lot on a few other topics. Now, I when I made notes for this conversation, I ran into multiple pages. <laughs> so we have a few, uh, we have less than an hour, so I'm going to uh, jump into it. So for those of my listeners who don't know, if you have been living under a rock in the Indian startup ecosystem, uh, just to run through uh, who my guest this time is, Rajan Anandan, uh, a wonderful human being, I should say, a, a great leader. Uh, I've had the privilege of uh, seeing him develop the India Google business from very close quarters. But uh, before that, uh, he was in leadership positions in uh, Microsoft and Dell and uh, McKinsey. And uh, uh, post Google, uh, he left, which he left in May 2019. Uh, he leads up uh, Sequoia's uh, search program and he's one of the uh, directors at Sequoia, managing uh, directors at Sequoia India. Uh, so welcome Rajan, thank you for making time for me. And uh, I, I usually st- have an anchor topic with each of my guests uh, and then we go from there and, and it let the conversation take its own uh, path. With you, I thought the, the anchor topic should be this thing, right? Of all the people I know, whether it is startup investing or uh, thinking 10x in Google, there's a lot of underlying risk-taking ability, mental frameworks, uh, tenacity, grit, whatever you want to call it. I see that a lot from you and in you, and I want to learn from that. So let's start from there, right? A couple of stories that I want to share uh, before I hear from you. One is uh, about your background. I read about your father and the kind of amazing risk-taker he was and the kind of... Uh, at, in his time, being a Guinness World Record holder multiple times over, um, amazing stories. And second, I, I don't know, this one is apocryphal, so you need to tell me whether it's true. What I heard was uh, you used your home loan amount to angel investment startups back in the day. This is a story that I heard from somebody in Google. So uh, with, uh, let's start from here, right? Uh, talk about your childhood, your experience with risk. And how that has shaped your success and made you the person you are. Context for this, Rajan, the, the, uh, I'm, I might be the complete opposite end of the spectrum, right? Uh, very risk covers, traditional family. Uh, I'll think five times before I leave a job. Uh, salary is all my entire, uh, you know, couple of generations before me have believed in. So uh, for me, this is a big learning that I want to unlock from. So let's start from there. Yeah. So first of all, uh, Harish, uh, great to see you. And uh... 
thank you for thank you for having me. Um, I think it's uh, it's super interesting what you've been up to uh, with your podcast series. So I think look, uh, I don't really know by the way where this. Uh, but for, first of all, by the way, I mean if I if I look at the, uh, the 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 people that I spend time with now, right, who are basically entrepreneurs. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think I take any risk compared to, uh, you know, what, what our founders do every single day, right? I mean, they really do take a lot more risks uh, than, 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 than I do uh, or that I, than I ever have. Uh, but I think in terms of, you, you know, I sort of think of it as, uh, uh, you know, it's a mental model that says anything is possible. Uh, I actually think of less, I probably should think of more of the risks. Uh, I don't think of it that way. I kind of think about, you know, what 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 is possible, right? And I think this notion of the art of the possible, I learned, uh, you know, both from my mom and my dad. Mm. As you said, when I was growing up, my father was a lawyer turned entrepreneur whose passion was endurance sports. You know, he liked endurance sports. And, uh, and his thing in life was, you know, he wanted to sort of break these sort of endurance sports world records, right? He was his first Sri Lanka to swim between uh, between, you know, I'm Sri Lankan, so I grew up in Colombo and when he was Sri Lankan, you know, we're Sri Lankan mm-hmm. Tamil, so we go back, ancestors go back to Tamil Nadu. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but you know, for all intents and purposes, we're Sri Lankan. So, um, you know, when he was 17, he swam the Prox Strait, mm-hmm. uh, which was a 20 plus mile straight between Sri Lanka, you know, the northern tip of Sri Lanka and the southern tip of India. Uh, and then that sort of set off, uh, 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 you know, a 25 year uh, journey for him where, you know, he sort of do these things and and you know growing up as a kid and and you know he used to have this thing where you know new year's eve uh, literally on at midnight on january 31st he would break a world record and they'd be <laughs> and they varied from like you know basically yeah treading water in a swimming pool for 128 hours to cycling for seven days mm-hmm. and so i kind of grew up in this household where that was normal right i mean i mean what do you what else do you know i mean <laughs> you know i had a younger brother who was five years younger to me and like literally you know, on New Year's Eve, we would be at some place, um, you know, either at a swimming pool where he was sort of treading water or some, you know, around some park where he was you know, bicycling for seven days. And the world record was broken literally at midnight, right? So, um, uh, and, and it was sort of a crazy also, like, you know, like when I was six or seven, I wanted a bike. And he's like, do 100 push-ups, I'll get you a bike. I, mean, I still can't do 100 push-ups, <laughs> you know, but man, I tried. So, um, so you know, and then, and then unfortunately, he passed away uh, when I was still, uh, you know, when I was, uh, when I was uh, barely a teenager. And, you know, um, and he, again, he passed away trying to do some crazy thing, which we won't get into, but it was one of those sort of outlandish things. Uh, but then my mom ended up taking over his business. I mean, he was an entrepreneur, but that was not really his passion. So mm-hmm. when he passed, uh, you know, my mom took over this business and we all thought the business was doing well. Obviously, the business was not doing well because that's not what he was focused on. Um, and then I saw my mom sort of go from working in the government to becoming an entrepreneur. And she built it up to be a much more successful enterprise than he ever had. And, and there again, I learned that. You know, you can pretty much do anything. And she did it because she had to, right? I mean, she had to she had to look after my brother and myself and, and also, uh, you know, take care of a whole set of things in the business that she had to take care of. Um, and, and, you know, so all of this stuff growing up, uh, you, you know, it sort of made me realize that, you know, anything is possible, right? And, and of course, you know, that, that notion of anything is possible is something that occurred to me uh, much later. And then, you know, also had the good fortune of, you know, like my first, I, I spent a long time at McKinsey and, um, 
yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I spent time with several McKinsey senior partners at the time as a very young McKinsey consultant who, again, was just like incredibly audacious, right? And and I think this notion of anything is possible, really be audacious, uh, is something that, you know, I, I, I continue to sort of learn from folks uh, that, uh, and, and as a result, look, I don't think of it as risk. I just think of what, what could, you know, you know, is it possible? And if it's possible, you know, what, it, what, what could that really mean and what could it become, right? And, uh, uh, and, and so it's a long answer to your question, but that's probably, I've never really thought of it that way, but it's probably it has a lot to do with sort of how I grew up and how things were shaped, but also like the people that you work with early in your career really have a, have a, have a bearing, right? So I've always, and, and as a result, I've always believed that you should work with people who let you flourish, Mm. who really let you do the things that you want to do and who push you to the edge, right? Because, you know, if you work with people who push you to the edge, you just think that living on the edge, you know, you know, you know in terms of just doing things that other people don't think are possible is sort of, that's the normal way to live. Got it. Awesome. Awesome story. And I think uh, a good, good context to what makes you the person you are. So thanks for sharing, Rajan. We can go many ways here from here, but uh, let's start up talking about uh, startups, right? Uh, you have been a, a believer in the India startup story long before others would believe in it. Uh, I think uh, you've been angel investing for over 15 years now. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, in India, in India. Yeah, more than that, actually. 2000, yeah, maybe 16, 17. I mean, I moved to India in 2005 from the US. I mean, I was investing, yeah. angel investing in the US long before I moved here. But uh, but I got involved with the Indian angel. I mean, when I moved here, I thought I should, because I'd been angel investing, but not in a systematic way. Firstly, I at McKinsey, you couldn't really kind of, you know, mm. at, at the time, right, it wasn't sort of the thing to do. Um, but then when I left McKinsey and I went to Dell, I, you know, started investing a little bit in the U.S. Uh, and uh, uh, but then when I moved to India, I said, look, I should just make it. More, and I really enjoyed it. So I sort of said, look, I should do it in a more systematic way. So I think 2000 and probably 2005 or 2006, I joined the Indian Angel Network. I mean, there, then there was no there were no companies to invest in. Right. So. I think my first year I invested in one company. Uh, so because there really weren't that many companies to invest in. Yeah, so I've been doing it for a long time. And Rajan, I think the, the stories that uh, you used to tell in Google also, right, the vision or, or the potential. So there was a time when we uh, had less than 100 million smartphones in the country. Uh, you know, uh, Geo was not a thing. Uh, and then this whole transformation happened, right? UPI, uh, Geo, uh, smartphone explosion, uh, and and I remember this uh, narrative we had of uh, voice, vernacular, and video. All that has come true. And and this year we have we have 33 unicorns so far. It is just unbelievable, right? Uh, the numbers which uh, you would have imagined to happen probably a few years from now. Uh, that the pace is accelerating. The number of unicorns, the kind of companies that are being built, the funding that is flowing in. It seems like it's it, this decade would be the decade for Indian startup ecosystem, right? It's going to be that magical time where everything uh, changes very, very dramatically. So given that the, the vantage point that you have on this whole ecosystem and what is happening here, how big can this get? And what can we do to accelerate it even further? Yeah, I think, uh, look, it can get very, very large, right? Uh, but this is actually, interestingly, you know, this is not... Uh, Harish, the India's decade for startups. India's decade for startups will be actually the next decade, interestingly. So 
And the reason I say that is, by the way, things are going to, I mean, they've already started accelerating and they will accelerate for a while. Although we will have some speed bumps and I'll talk about that. I mean, we're going to see some major speed bumps, right? <laughs> you know, nothing that goes up this fast as it keeps going up. <laughs> you know, it's going to correct and when it corrects, it's going to be massively painful. Uh, but that's okay. But actually, you know, you know, India's GDP per capita is, you know, call it $2,000. We got set back by about 10, 15% with COVID. You know, let's say we grow at 6, 7% GDP per capita. I know everybody would like us to grow at 10%, but I don't know whether a country like India can grow at 10%, but I don't think we need to. I think if we grow at 6, 7%. So if you grow at 6, 7%, look, it's towards the end of this decade, right? So, you know, somewhere between 2028 and 2030 is when they, when India will get to that $4,000 per capita, right? And, and as we look at markets around the world, uh, you know, be they China in 2009, be it Indonesia a few years ago, be it Brazil, um, you know, you saw a massive inflection point in consumer spending, disposable spending, when a country gets to that $4,000 per capita uh, sort of neighborhood, right, area. And, and that actually, India is almost a decade away from that, you know, GDP per capita, right? So depending on how fast we grow, right, maybe it'll happen by 27, 28, maybe it's 2030. But, you know, from 2030 onwards, right, as India then goes from $4,000 to let's call it $8,000 or $9,000 per capita, uh, from 2030 to 2040, uh, what we are going to see is not just level of innovation in terms of company creation, user growth, um, et cetera, but we are actually going to see monetization happen at hyper, hyper scale, right? So 2009, uh, China crossed $4,000 per capita. Alibaba's GMV went up $50 billion in one year, right? So I think, I think you know, in the next decade, we will see companies go from, you know, it'll be very normal to see a company go from zero to $100 million of revenue in one year, right? Founding to $100 million of revenue in one year. Today, you can actually see a company go from zero to 100 crores of revenue, right? So in the direct-to-consumer brand space, you know, you, know you, you, you guys work with fashion brands. You know, we tend to invest in uh, uh, sort of personal care brands in India, Indonesia, et cetera, right? Uh, I mean, we have one of our companies in Surge. Uh, um, that that went from zero to 100 crores of revenue with 30% pat in nine months. Okay, if you had asked me, you know, can an Indian startup do this? Like before it happened, literally in 2019, I would have said not yet, right? Similarly, but but remember that is zero to that is zero to 100 crores. That's not zero to 750 crores, right? Uh, so I, so I think you know in the next decade. And by the way, this. Everything that sort of I thought would happen, as you said, has always happened in India. Not always. In many cases, especially with startups, seems to have happened, you know, before before we thought it would be. So maybe it'll happen before 2030. But certainly, I mean, that is, you know, and that is when you, that that's when, you know, we really hit game time, right? We hit game time not when valuations get to be a billion dollars. We hit game time when you have a billion dollars of revenue. That is high gross margin. That is positive cash flow because those become you know, massively powerful, not powerful as in powerful, but, you know, massively interesting sort of real companies, right? So, so I think, so, so my view, Harish, is we are in a 20 to 30 year game, right? I, you know, I have a, a, a very strong personal view that India has a real shot of becoming the most innovative nation by 2040. That's 20 years, that's not 10 years out. And, and, and we have a real shot, right? I'm, and, and I mean genuinely more innovative than Silicon Valley, genuinely more innovative than China. Uh, and today we're a distant, one could argue, we're a distant third, right? We have the US, we have China, and then depending on the sector, you can argue 
which one is ahead, but we are a distant third, right? And then in many, and I'm talking overall, and but then you can take specific spaces where we are not even in the on the map yet. But 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 if you look at it, I think you know most people will say that India is the third largest startup ecosystem. We are the third most vibrant, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But for us to go from third, three to one is is lots of things have to come come together. And but but I think in a twenty year horizon, we have a real real shot of uh, shot of doing that. But that being said, look, I think. Uh, I think what we're seeing today is we're seeing an acceleration of company creation. We're seeing an acceleration of, of value creation uh, from a market cap uh, standpoint. But I think we should be a little careful, right, not to celebrate too early uh, because, you know, those of us that have been around, around for a long time that know that, you know, getting to a billion dollar valuation is different from getting to a billion dollars of revenue. And a billion dollars of revenue with strong unit economics is, is really the game, right? And we're still... Uh, quite a ways from uh, quite a ways from doing that. But now that being said, look, the fact is, Baiju's is ten thousand crores of revenue mm. with very strong gross margins, with very healthy unit economics, and uh, uh, you, you know, and and as per what he has talked about, right? And these are numbers from from Baiju and the company, right? And this is a company that's still growing at 100 percent year on year, right? So, is there a reason that Baiju's can't be a fifty thousand crore revenue company, uh, you know, a few years from now? You know, absolutely not, right? And and that that scale, you know, you are now serious. Uh, serious company, right? So, so I think it's it's definitely accelerated. Uh, I think it's very very exciting. But uh, but the way sort of I look at it is, we're, it's still early days in India. Got it. Got it. And let's talk a bit more about that. Uh, I, I want to touch upon the culture of the way startups are seen in the country and the way startup founders are celebrated or, or rather not celebrated in the country. Right? In the West, if you if you start a company and fail, it's seen as a badge of honor. In the next company you apply, it will be seen as a positive. Doesn't happen in this country yet, right? Uh, secondly, um, uh, the the chase for talent, the chase for money is very difficult. The, the good engineers are are few and far in between. So, from a structural point of view, maybe as Sequoia, maybe as Cert, maybe as just Rajananandan, right? What are the things that you would like to see happen, or what would you like to uh, initiate? In this decade to for us to be prepared for that next decade that is coming. Yeah, by the way, I, I think the the uh, I mean I mean clearly failure is still not celebrated uh, the way it should be. But look, it's interesting. Last week, uh Harish, we decided to um you know partner with a company mm-hmm. uh that uh, that is going to be in our next surge cohort. Uh and 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 one of the co-founders, his first startup didn't work. Mm. Right, so actually, we like entrepreneurs who are doing it for the second or third time, and uh, where the first one didn't work or didn't work as well, mm. uh, because you know, there's the best way to learn is to fail. Yeah, I mean, not to fail, but to kind of you know have not not a great outcome, right? So I think you'll see this more and more. I mean, the important thing obviously is to learn from <laughs> learn from what didn't go well, right? Now, if you haven't learned from what didn't go well, uh, that's a that's a problem. But but, but I think this will change, right? This will this will certainly change. Uh, I mean, I've even seen over the last five years, I think a very significant change in, uh, I mean, look, you know, India has gone from, you know, everybody asking what is a startup to saying startups aren't real to now saying, oh my gosh, startups have arrived, right? Uh, so, so I mean, these, these these are natural changes that happen to, uh, uh, you know, happen in a country, in an, in an ecosystem. So I, I worry less about that. I, I think if you ask the question, maybe I'll reframe the question, Harish, to say, because I like to take a very long-term view, right? I'm not as fast about one or two years out. Sure. Uh, but if you ask this question about what does it take for India to become the most innovative nation in the world in a 20-year horizon? 
Mm. Right. Uh, th- that is a question that I really like. Um, I think it's a handful of things, right? I think one, we need to make sure that we have progressive regulations as a nation, uh, regulations that are pro-innovation, but at the same time take care of consumers. Uh, so I'll give you, uh, I'll give you two or three examples of. And by the way, to be fair, India is now very, very progressive when it comes to public digital infrastructure, right? Um, you know, India went from not having a digital payments ecosystem to a having the most advanced digital payments ecosystem all of three years, right? Yeah. Why were we able to do that? It was because of UPI. Why does UPI exist? Because of Aadhaar, right? So, so, and I think similar, this focus on, and now for instance, we will go, by the way, from not having a digital lending ecosystem to being the most advanced digital ecos- lending ecosystem in the world, three, four years. By 2025, there will be no country in the world that will have a digital lending ecosystem like India. Why? Because of uh, you know, Aadhaar, uh, I mean, with, with Oaken and Account Aggregator, you know, those set of frameworks, right, will, will, will sort of pretty much open up, uh, you know, digital lending like the way the world hasn't seen before, right? So so those things are enabled, by the way, because of public digital infrastructure, right? Extremely right. forward-looking, uh, extremely... Uh, so, 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 so we have examples of, of this being done already by, by, by Indian governments, Indian policymakers, right? But when it comes to regulation, like, for instance... Let's take uh, let's take Web three, right? One manifestation of that is obviously cryptocurrency, which a lot talk about. But if you look at the Web three and what is likely to happen with Web three, right? Whether it's gaming driven by NFT gaming, whether it's web infrastructure, whether it's DeFi, which is sort of the next generation of finance, uh, 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 you know, India has a unique opportunity to lead the world, right? And the reason I say that is because we have a large number of engineers. We have a large number of Web2 engineers. We have an even larger number of engineers who are for currently focusing on uh, you know, IT services industries, right? And we have a massive number of graduates every year. Uh, so if we have the right regulatory framework, and I, by the way, we should also be very careful as a nation, right? You can't have uncontrolled, unbridled innovation in any sector. I mean, then you end up in a place that you don't wanna end up in. Uh, but, but I do think with smart, with smart regulatory frameworks, uh, India has a shot of really becoming a force to contend with uh, in Web3, right? It's pretty clear that China will build a Web3 for China, uh, but China is not going to participate in the building out of Web3 globally, right? Uh, we have a very strong India-focused Web2 ecosystem. Mm. But, you know, one could argue if you look at Web2 globally, are we really relevant? Not really, right? Because we were late to the party, right? We were late because, you know, Google's and the Facebooks and the Amazons got built out around the world. But when it comes to Web3, we can actually lead the world. All right, so, so that's just one example, right? Another example would be, uh, you know, just in FinTech, right? So payments, I think it's been fantastic. Uh, I think digital lending is gonna happen, right? So India should really think about having digital banking licenses, right? If we had five or six pure play digital banks, you can imagine what could happen uh, to innovation in the banking ecosystem, right? So today you have neo banks, which are interesting, but at the end of the day, you're dependent on banks, right? So. Uh, so, so I think regulation, and, and by the way, I can go through lots of different sectors. Like, for instance, in EV, right? Uh, India is actually being very progressive in EV. So, over the next three, four, five years, we are going to see more innovation in EV than any of us can imagine, right? Because we have very good regulation, we have good incentives, and so on and so forth. So, so you can go through sort of segment after segment after segment, and and so that's one part, which is you know sort of smart, forward-looking, innovation-friendly. Uh, sort of regulation. That's sort of part one. And and by the way, just another one that 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 we've been talking about for a long time in the ecosystem for about eighteen months now is enabling you know allowing Indian companies 
to list internationally, right? Uh, that just opens up literally trillions of dollars of capital uh, for our startups today, right? Uh, uh, that 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 is not 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 available to our global companies, right? Companies like Freshworks that really want to win in the U.S. That want to be in the world, so that's one. I think the second is look, we we have to, uh, as you said, uh, we have to have many more, you know, world class engineers, right? Um, uh, today we have a large engineering population. We have a large number of engineers who are graduating, uh, but you know, very few of them are, you know, job ready, uh, let alone being world class. So I think we should have a movement to really train up, and not just engineering, right? Engineering, product design in these three areas. Can we really have millions? Not Thousands today, in many ways, you know, maybe we have thousands. You know, one could argue if you're really generous, maybe we have tens of thousands uh, of world-class engineers. You know, this sort of call it the engineering start in the, in the, in the startup land in India. Uh, the question is, you know, can you go from a you know, let's call it maybe a thousands, maybe if you're generous, ten or twenty thousand, can we hundred x that over the next decade, right? And and um, because I think if you do that, then you really Upskill. I mean, today, as you know, right? If you're an early stage startup or mid stage startup or a Series D funded unicorn, hiring engineers is impossible. I mean, at Surge, you know, we have many Indian Surge companies that are now, you know, sort of looking to hire engineers in places as far off uh, as Ghana. You know, one of our startups just hired three engineers in Ghana. You know, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, you know, <laughs> etc. You know, Eastern Europe, right? I mean, it's it's that's not cool because you know, like we have millions of engineers right but the but as you just said too we just don't have that sort of talent um to do that so i think that's number two i think the third is look um the most important thing is you know india's gdp uh you know has to grow at seven eight percent or six seven eight percent right uh, because at the end of the day you know um big companies can get built you know when you have large uh spending power right so that's not something that this it's not specifically tied to you know india has to live up to an economic promise Right, as a nation, so 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 I think that's that's pretty that's pretty important. But I think you know if you have those two three things, uh, you know we have uh, you know we have enough entrepreneurs. The quality of our entrepreneurs gets better and better. Um, you know, so I think we will see more and more interesting companies come up. I mean, just if you look at you know the surge, you know companies, uh, Arish. I mean the level, the kind of innovation that we're seeing is just extraordinary, right? Uh, and and so. Um, so I'd say those are the things that need to need to really happen. Got awesome. Very optimistic, and uh, definitely uh, I can see that happening in the next, uh, actually below ten years horizon. Um, now I would like to talk about uh, angel investing, Rajan. I think uh, given the time I have with you, it'll be amiss if I if we don't talk about uh, that part of your journey. Uh, talk about how you got started, right? So. It is a it is a type of uh, uh, investment that needs a, a, a very different mindset towards uh, money allocation or asset allocation. Uh, it also needs a lot of interest in the field, and and the fact that you have been doing it for a, such a long time, um, the the goodness accrues over time and compounds in a very long period of time. But when you got started first, right? What was the first maybe the first five years of investing? How did that happen? What what did you learn at that point in time? What can somebody like me who has been doing it for three four years can learn from your journey? Yeah, I think I think look, uh, I I didn't start off trying to be an angel investor. I I, I didn't start off doing any of that. Uh, 
Harish, I went to MIT undergrad and Stanford grad school and a few of my friends became entrepreneurs. I had a job in McKinsey and they were building companies and they needed money. <laughs> you know, so I was just basically, you know, kind of like my friends, needed, a few of my friends, not all of them, you know, some of them needed some money to build, build their companies. And I just ended up, uh, I didn't even know what investing was, but, you know, like, I ended up putting some money into some of their companies and some of them obviously did very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I didn't really get into this thinking, I want to be an angel investor, right? And, and then o- over the years, I just found startups very intriguing, right? And part of it probably going back to the fact that my dad was an entrepreneur. And actually, many of my friends from undergrad and grad school became entrepreneurs, obviously, MIT, Stanford. Uh, so, you know, entrepreneurship sort of is in the air uh, in those schools. So I sort of saw them. And and um, so so I, I would say I, I didn't really, I mean, I didn't get into it in wanting to be an angel investor, right? Uh, but but I would say, you know, probably after I moved to India is when I got a little more systematic about it. Um, and 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 then, I mean, and quite frankly, I, I just went overboard. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like, no, I mean, like, you know, there were like 10 rules of how to do financial planning well. I mean, I violated all 10 of those rules, right? Because, I mean, I, you know, what I did was not, just not normal. Uh, to put that much capital into that many companies uh, or even over a period of 10 or 15 years is just not not something I mean unless you're just absolutely like crazy I, I would not I would not recommend it it's just like oh, hey look it's it's probably all gonna work out because you know I mean uh, but 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 it wasn't but but what 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 I've, what I've learned though is um, so so firstly I would say you know going down the path that I went down number one you know it's not something that I planned to and number two may not be the best most prudent, thoughtful way to do it. Yeah. Uh, but there are a few things that I learned that I think could, could be applicable to any any person, anybody who's either starting up or making angel investments. I think the first is, you know, you have to have a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, uh, look, even, even as an institutional investor today, right, at Sequoia and Surge, it's very, very, I mean, look, we, we absolutely try incredibly hard to invest in the top 1% of the startups, okay? Extraordinary founders going after very large markets. Most of them are sort of very, very early. They haven't launched or they've launched with a little bit of traction, right? And, and, and despite all of that and with the capabilities of Sequoia, with the institutional knowledge of sectors and so on and so forth, um, uh, you, know, you know, we are not able to get it right all the, all the time, right? So, so as an angel investor, you have a lot less information. You have no support infrastructure. Uh, you may know the things that you know, but there's a lot that you don't know. Um, uh, you know, the reality is if you're very, very good and you're lucky, one out of 10 of your angel investments will do really, really well, right? So, uh, but, you know, five or six are probably going to go to zero. And then maybe with the others, you get two, three times your capital back. So, so, so I think the first thing is, is having a portfolio is really, really important, right? I think second is, um, you know, in the early days investing, either you only invest in, in spaces where you really know the space, um, where you know you're able to kind of get a good understanding of is this company does it make sense does it not make sense mm-hmm. uh, or you should co-invest with others who are very very experienced so that's why uh, you know I'm a big fan of angel networks or platforms mm-hmm. like Let's Venture following lead investors because mm-hmm. hopefully you know you're co-investing with others who actually know what they're doing right because a lot of it is really learning uh, learning about like how to judge great founders you know what makes a great founder versus not. Um, you know, how do you make sure that you're investing in spaces that make sense? Yeah. So I think, I think uh, so one is portfolio. I think second is either you spend, you know, quite a number of years sort of learning the game uh, or you kind of go deep into spaces that you know really well. Now, the thing is, even if you focus on a space that you know really, really well, right, how do you build that calibration, uh, the founder calibration, right, where you can 
very quickly sort of, you know, you get to spend an hour or two, or maybe you may spend two, three hours with a with a founding team. How are you able to assess whether this is a team that has what it takes to, you know, build this company for the next 10, 15, 20 years and make it a large enterprise, right? So that's the second one. I think the third thing, which I didn't know until I joined Sequoia is, um, especially if you're going to be a very active investor, um, you know, you should try to be helpful on a few areas, right? Now, by the way, I was pretty much always on call because I had too many companies and I was running Google. Uh, so uh, Google in our region. So I, I didn't really have any time, but I had one simple thing, which is if you call me, I will always help you. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter, right? Um, but but I wish I was more, a little more involved in companies, uh, especially when it came to follow-on fundraising. Uh, because one thing I've learned, at, you know, having been at Sequoia a little over two years is who's on your cap table really does matter. Right, because you know it could it could be an either an enabler for your next rounds, make it a little easier, or uh, it could uh, you know certainly you know uh, you know the investors can you know they have different levels of adding value. Uh, I didn't quite understand that, right? And and um, uh, uh, because I, you know I wasn't really involved, right? I mean, yes, if, if a startup called and said, "Hey, look, I want to raise my next next round. Can you introduce me to these ten funds?" If I knew the ten funds, I'll introduce them. But I didn't really play an active role in in in, in helping them. So I think that's the third thing. The fourth one is, um, you know, you know, as an angel investor, you you have to build a brand over a period of time, because look, angel investing is very simple, right? You have to see all the companies, and you have to get an opportunity to invest in the best companies. Yeah. Because yeah. investing, uh, early stage investing, is a power law of business, right? Very few companies work, yeah. and the ones that work work at scale, right? Uh, so so if I look at you know like my entire fifteen years of investing in India, the reality is one or two companies will more than pay for all of that, right? And now there's like literally triple digit numbers of companies that I've invested in, but one or two now, now you know, many more than one or two will work, but yeah, in more than 10 or 15% won't be really those big wins, right? But but one or two of them will pay the whole thing, right? So that that I think is there. And, and, and for that to happen, you have to see as many companies. So not, not when you start off, but but you have to become a magnet, right? Where entrepreneurs seek you out, and 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 to do that, I think number one, obviously, it helps that you know you have something to add of value, right? Something of substance that maybe the best thing is you know you've invested in a few successful companies, and therefore people think that you know they should come to you because you know you can whether you do it or not, they think that you can help them be successful. But I think a lot of it is how you treat entrepreneurs, right? So I'm on a thread with one of my companies that I invested in, you know, many years ago, maybe six, seven years ago. And unfortunately, look, that that founder, that first company that he was building didn't work out, right? Hmm. Anyway, I won't get into the details, but, you know, then he sort of tried to pivot into some new company and he was trying to buy out the angels. And look, my view is very simple, right? If founder calls me and says, look, Rajan, this doesn't work down. I want to shut down. I'm like, what can I do to help you? Founder calls and says, hey, look, I'd like to buy you guys out and just restructure the cap table. What can I do to help? Like, because my view is very simple, okay? You are one of many companies I'm investing in as an angel, uh, but this has yeah. been your life for the last three years, five years, in some cases, 10 years. So I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you have tried everything humanly possible to make the company work. And my role is to be supportive, right? So because until then, I don't angel invest anymore, Arish, after I joined Sequoia, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm in Sequoia Search. Um, but but every, there's so many names of very active angel investors. And I can tell you, they're all looking at this person and saying, oh my God, so founder unfriendly. Never in a million years is this guy, it's a guy, going to get on a cap table that is going to have any one of these other investors because we all see it. It's like, seriously? I mean, he probably, I don't know, maybe he invested, what, 20 lakhs? For 20 lakhs, this founder, and I know, he's given it all he's got for six years. 
Okay, now he wants to go do something different, you know. And, and by the way, he's being very fair. I think he's being very fair because you know most most and not at least 50, 60, 70 percent of angel investors go to zero. That's it, zero, right? Uh, that's a fact. So if you have an opportunity to get anything back, you should be very grateful. And even if you're not getting anything back, wish that founder well because let him go and you know chase whatever the next big thing is, right? So so I think I think that that is also very important, right? Is what do you do as an angel? How do you react? when things don't work. And I probably the last thing I'd say is, these are things I've learned is, you know, if you're not gonna, if you look, the good thing is, if you're in successful companies as an angel, you have a lot of opportunities to exit in the series A, series B rounds, right? Series A at 50 million or 40 million, series B at 100 or 200 million. But after a point, your options become quite limited until it gets to be very, very large. Okay, so I recently exited a company uh, you know, that's valued at north of $2 billion. Uh, I have been trying to exit this company from 500 million to 2 billion. I could not. Because, I mean, what's like, why, why would the founder want to exit some angel, right? Yeah, it's a decent, meaningful amount of capital. So, um, but I could have exited at 100 million or 200 million, right? So, so my view is, look, if you have an opportunity to exit, let's say at series A or B, uh, I learned this from, uh, uh, I can't remember who it was, actually. I learned this actually in 2006 or seven. I was sitting in some fire and I learned this. He said, you know, use a simple rule, which is, can this company 5x from here? So let's say you have an opportunity to exit a company series B at 150 million. You ask your question, can it be 5x, meaning 750 billion? I would now say make it 10x, mm. right? Mm. Which is like, uh, if you don't think this company, let's say you have an opportunity to exit at 200 million, okay, 100 million or 200 million. If this company can't be one or two billion, uh, or you don't have confidence that will be for whatever reason, right? Uh, then you're probably better off exiting uh, at 200 because it may be a really long time before you can exit at 2 billion, right? So, but on the other hand, if you think like I had, I had an option to exit a company at, at 3 billion, right? I'm not going to exit. I think it's going to be 30 billion. So, but if I thought that this company can only maybe get to five or six, seven billion, I would have exited. So, so I think exit timing as an angel is super important. And by the way, nobody gets it right, right? I have got it wrong more. I have got it wrong more uh, on exit timing than I've got it right. But one thing I've learned is this thing, which is like, you think that, oh, just because the company is a billion dollars, it's easy to exit. It's not easy to exit because you have to ask yourself founders, right? The founders, they want to take primary capital. They want, you know, like they have no interest. I mean, you may, you know, you may think that, um, you know, they have no moral obligation, right? To, okay. you know, to, to help you exit. Makes sense. This is super helpful, Rajan, especially the last two things I had no idea about. Both uh, the the way you are looking at the cap table and um, what you spoke about the growth potential, right? I think uh, this is the first time I'm learning about this. So thank you for sharing that. Very helpful. Yeah, as an investor, by the way, exits are the hardest thing to do, right? And 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 uh, being able to exit, I mean, a lot of angels and investors think that they have all these markups, right? Mm -hmm. What does a markup mean? Yeah, markup doesn't mean anything until you manage to exit. Correct. Makes sense. So uh, I want to talk about, how, I mean, the the, uh, the time I spent in Google and I saw you from near and from far. Um, I thought there was a there was a very interesting balance that you uh, uh, had, Rajan, in pushing to think 10x, but at the same time, uh, making the teams feel positive and not demotivated that this can't happen, right? This is too big. And I, so there was always that balance of when I go to Rajan, he will ask me to add a zero to my targets. I know that. But at the same time, what he asks will be realistic, right? That balance is, um, I feel is missing. And when when I 
uh, I'm leading teams of 100, 200, 300 people. And when I talk about these kind of target setting, um, I would love to understand your mental frameworks or, or any uh, tips you would have on making it aspirational, but at the same time, setting the team up for success, right? And building that entrepreneurial or startup spirit within a large company. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, look, there's no, I don't think there's a, there's, there's no right or wrong way to do it. I mean, I, you know, um, I think, look, at the, at the end of the day, Harish, you have to believe, mm. you know, if you don't believe you're not going to stick with it and, and your teams are going to see through it, right. Because you're going to be the first to give up or when they push back and say, this can't be done, you know, you say, so, so I think you have to have extraordinary self-belief, mm. Uh, that it can be done, right? And and you also have to know that along the way, there are going to be many speed bumps and there are going to be many, many times where it's very easy for you and your team to say, look, it can't be done. Yeah. Okay, so, um, I mean, as you probably remember, right? Uh, I don't know when, when you joined Google, but when I joined Google, Google's India's revenue was 90 million. The entire digital ad market was 140 million, right? right. Within six months, I'd gone and told Nikesh and Larry that, you know, we're going to get to 750 million in four years, right? With the whole damn digital ad market was $140 million. I mean, you know, like, okay, I mean, you could like, like any sort of analytical person must look at this and say, this is not possible, right? But the reality was the overall media market was a few billion dollars. And you just have to run the map to say, look, the overall media market goes at X and then digital does Y and, you know, whatever, right? Um, so, you know, I think it took us about six months to kind of get to that. And, and then, I mean, I had the good fortune of Google India where, you know, we built that team up pretty much from scratch. So, you know, when people came on board, you you know you you could kind of number one, you hired people who thought you know you know you could do these things, um, uh, but but there was there was math behind it, right? Like yeah. I remember when Neha Neha who ran Internet Sati, right? Uh, yeah. uh, you know, Sandeep was our CMO at the time, and Neha said, look, we should sort of go get these women in rural India online, and you know she came up with some number, and then we kind of said, okay, why don't we just get to you know hundred thousand villages and like. I don't know, some crazy number, right? Uh, like 100,000 villages, right? Like like 100,000 villages? I mean, India has, well, why, why is 100,000 possible? Well, 100,000 possible because India has 635,000 villages. Because at 100,000, you're still only at 15%, 15% of the villages, right? So so, um, so so there has to be some math, hmm. you know, that, that works, right? I mean, even if it's crazy math, then you said 15% of all Indian villages when we weren't even in one village, Okay, that's like a massive, massive stretch, right? Now, it took us four years to do that, but thanks to Neha and the, the team and also Tata Trust, right? I mean, we, we actually got to that number. So, 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 so I, think, I think, you know, you have to believe, number one. Number two, there has to be some, some math or, or some science uh, to these crazy, uh, right? Uh, to, these, to sort of the crazy uh, ambition and goal. And the third thing is you have to keep in mind that along the way, there will be many, many setbacks, Right. And I think as a leader, what you have to do is not give up. You mm. can't let the teams give up. You can't give up. And you have to know that. See, because the thing is, when you set down on a when you when you set down, when you when you set out on a journey, right? And and you know that you're gonna get shot at many times. Yeah. You're gonna get hurt sometimes, you know, maybe uh <laughs> you know, bad things are gonna happen, right? So 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 that then mentally prepares you on how to deal with those. Uh, situations, right? Because what what if what many many leaders do is they'll set these big goals, and the first time that they're off track or they don't they miss some interim goal, like for instance, right? We didn't get to seven hundred and fifty million in four years. We got to seven hundred and fifty million in five years, but then we got to two billion run rate in something like you know eight years or something, right? Which is crazy. Yeah. So 
Uh, and I remember one of the biggest mistakes I made was we threw the billion dollar Google India party before we got to a billion dollars. <laughs> Never make that mistake again. Literally, we took the whole team to Goa. We threw this big party in the anticipation of billion dollars. And I can't remember what happened. Something, you know, in India, something happens every few years, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it didn't happen. So it happened the next year, right? <laughs> next year, we're very clear. We're going to hit a billion dollars and then, uh, and, and then, and then they'll have this big celebration. So, I think those are the things that you've got to do, right? And I think over time, Arish, the most important thing is you have to build a team of believers where that is in the DNA, right? I mean, I remember, you know, my last year or two at Google India and the same thing in Southeast Asia, right? it took about a year and a half mm -hmm. uh, and, and then it just, just took off, right? I mean, just took off. <laughs> just like took off because, you know, because then you get a team that just believes they can do it, right? And, and, and you know, by the way, you built that culture when, like, it's not you throwing out these crazy things, right? The team would come back and say, we can do this. And you're like thinking, wow, that's, that's thinking mm -hmm. big. I mean, when your team starts coming up and saying, look, we can do this and we want to do this, and you think it's pretty outrageous, mm -hmm. that's when you know you've arrived. Where it's no longer you as a leader pushing, but really the yeah. team coming and saying, this can be done. Got it. Got it. And any tips on finding such people before you know that they are believers? No, I think you have to just figure out, like... You know, like, I'll give you an interesting example, okay? I, I was interviewing a head of sales for one of our startups uh, maybe two, three weeks ago, right? And this startup's only got like 700 or 800K of revenue. These are seed stage companies, right? And their plan was to go from 800K to 3 million. Hmm. I was interviewing this guy. And I said, look, next plan for next year is 6 million. He fell off a chair. He said, what do you mean 6 million? I said, 6 million. I mean, like, look, if you want your founders to be happy with you, you know, it's 3 million. If you want me to remember who you are, you better go land 6 million because I you know 3 million is not interesting to me. So, and then I sort of told him, you know, and the guy didn't end up taking the job because he thought 6 million was too high. Now think about this, right? If a sales leader who thinks 6 million is too big a number, mm -hmm. you think this guy is going to go build a $25 million ARR company? Absolutely not. Because yeah. 3 million itself, he thinks is huge. Yeah. 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 So 6 million, he thinks is mission impossible. Beyond that, never going to happen. So, you know, you've got to kind of, um, and, and, you know, I always like to sort of tell people, hey, look, this is what we want to do. And, you know, if they sort of first, you know, look, most people are in shock. They're like, really, are you serious? But they're like, okay, so tell me why you think that's possible. And, you know, then you talk about why it's possible. And then if they get into it and they think, wow, that's really interesting. You know, I'd love to do that. Actually, most people, especially senior people, right? They, if they don't think it's possible, you will be able to read it either in their face, in their body language, mm -hmm. in what they say. And, you know, I'm just not, I mean, life's too short to be with folks who, you know, think small. And by the way, the best, and the best proof you can have is data, right? So I'll tell you, you know, like India hasn't had a single SaaS company that's gone from one to $10 million of revenue in one year, okay? One year, uh, usually it takes maybe two years or whatever. So, but the first company that does it, then that becomes a trend, okay? So in SaaS, Harish, we have this thing called T2, D3, okay? You triple for two years, and then you double for three years and you can get to $100 million of revenue. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because $100 million ARR is sort of the magic number. You get to $100 million ARR, you know, you'll be worth, you know, valued at well north of a billion dollars, right? Yeah. So that's the model, right? Now, if you want to come up, if you want to be faster than T2, D3, mm -hmm. first you can talk about it. But once you can find that one example, boom, that becomes a new normal, right? I mean, that's the beauty, beauty of human behavior is, yeah. you know, the best, you know, if you can show that it's been done before, in fact, uh, you know, now actually in, in our own SaaS, SaaS port, you know, surge SaaS portfolio, we have like lots of companies. Um, you know, we have three companies that are, by the way, they haven't done it yet. Three companies that have said they're going to try to do it. 
So if you talk to me end of 2022, if one of them has managed to do it, I'm hoping all three do, but let's say one of them does at a minimum, that then sets a new benchmark. Then the new benchmark for Indian SaaS best in, best in class is not going from one to four million. We have companies that can go from one to four million, one to five million, but nobody's done one to 10 yet. Mm. But the minute one of them does, boom, that's the new normal. It's not the new normal, but it can be done. Yeah, it's the like the four-minute mind. Yeah, exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. So like, you know, like, look, I mean, Google India went from 90 million to 750 million in, I don't know, uh, four and a half, you know, five years, five years, I think it took, four and a half, five years. I mean, so if somebody comes and tells me they're going to grow from 90 million to 500 million in three years, you think I'm going to be excited? Absolutely not. I'm like, seriously, do better. Mm. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Uh Rajan, I, I've heard you talk about doing things you're passionate about, right? Multiple times. Life is short. You want to do just the things that you really love. But when you're young, that is this the thing that I want to do all my life? That question mark is not very easily answered, you know? So uh, any advice to our younger listeners? How to find what, what you really need? Yeah, by the way, I mean, look, if you look at my career, I haven't done the same thing for, you know, several decades, right? I mean, I was at McKinsey for 11 years. Now, I do believe in doing things for a meaningful period of time, <laughs> you know, because, you know, doing something for six or 12 months, you know, doesn't really get you here nor there, right? You can't be, you could barely know what you're doing in six or 12 months. So, so you know, I was at McKinsey for 11 years. Then I went into operating companies, you know, Dell, Microsoft, and Google uh, for 15 years. And now, you know, I'm a full-time investor for a couple of years, right? So I'm really in my third career, if I think of it that way, right? Uh, because I'm not, you know, I was consulting, then I was operating, and now I'm now I'm investing. So, uh, yeah. so I haven't done the same thing either for for that many uh, for, for 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 you know several decades. But I do think, you know, you know, the way that I think about. By the way, it's not just something you're passionate about, right? It's something you're passionate about that you also have capability in. Hmm. Uh, because Harish, when I was uh, when I was growing up in Sri Lanka, you know, as I was saying, I was growing up in this this sports obsessed household okay so and, and i was terrible at sports <laughs> like i was like terrible my younger brother was national diving champion of sri lanka at the age of 13 okay i mean i could barely make the swim team so you know i tried really hard i was on the cricket team of my high school and you know much later right in my 20s i met my coach who i'm very fond of and i asked him like why did you ever play me he said he said look the only reason i played you was you worked so hard you worked three times harder than everybody else right like do you think that i should i should not have played cricket I mean, like I should have done something else, you know, <laughs> because, because I was very passionate about cricket, mm. but I sucked. Okay. So first of all, it's passion with capability, right? I mean, you, you like, for instance, right? Like, you know, uh, like today, you know, lots of teenagers come and tell me, you know, they want to be a YouTube star, but you know, you want to be a YouTube singing star and you can't sing. That's probably not a great idea. <laughs> you know, you may be passionate about it, but you have to, you know, so, so I think you've got to be passionate and you have to have some capability, right? Maybe not world-class because I think that, that you can get to by, by, by practicing. Yeah. So I think the way to think about it is look at any given point in time, you should be doing things that you really, really love doing. Mm -hmm. that you also have some capability. So let's set that aside. That's pretty obvious, right? Um, but but then keep in mind, at some point, you may decide, look, this is not what I want to do. That's perfectly fine, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, after 11 years at McKinsey, I decided that, look, I want to try something very, very different, right? I admired my clients who was running companies. And I said, let me go learn how to be an operator. So I spent 15 years basically operating in various capacities, right? 
Uh, and then at the end of that, I've always been passionate about startups. I said, look, I've been investing in my own capital. I said, I was always intrigued by, oh, maybe, you know, this venture capital thing would be interesting. And I was very fortunate that the Sequoia Shalendra, more than others came to me, they were launching Surge and said, hey, you want to be a part of this? I said, yeah, let me go try it. That's yeah. fantastic, right? And I'm really glad I did that. So um, so I think I think it's perfectly fine, right? But 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 the way but the way what not to do is just do a job mm-hmm. right where you know your heart's not in it you can't wait for the day to end uh you're not inspired by it which means you're not going to give it your best and therefore you're going to leave you know you're going to be quite mediocre i mean that's sad because you know i anybody who's listening to this podcast arish as you and i know has tremendous potential tremendous you can be extraordinary at something and i think you know the the net takeaway should be go find that one thing that you can be extraordinary at that you would also enjoy doing right because otherwise you're just going to be mediocre and you know it's just, it's it's it you don't want to live life being mediocre right uh because and especially if you're listening to this podcast because you know you're probably how many how many followers do you have how many people listen to your podcast harish few few hundreds few thousands Few thousands. Okay, let's set a goal, Harish. Today, right? A year from now, please get at least to a million. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, like, you must get to a million. So there you go, right? So you're going to have a direct impact on a million people. And by the way, those million are going to be the top one million out of country of one point three billion or whatever, right? So, so I think anybody listening to your podcast, either year or you know now or a year from now or two years from now, you know, each and every one of these folks listening to your podcast has the potential to be extraordinary. And I think the quest. should be how do you find that thing and by the way that thing can change over a period of time right um because you know you might say look after a while it's like me like i i don't want to be you know consulting for 40 years right so that's that's the call that i made but while i was at mckinsey i had a great time i loved what i did i mean i loved it every single day mm. awesome advice as always and inspirational as always ajay it is always wonderful talking to you i hope we have more of these conversations and I hope uh, I will make that one million number in the next one year. So it's uh, yeah. There you go. I think there you go. I gave you a moonshot goal. <laughs> yeah. Last question I'll have for you since we are almost out of time. Any uh, last two questions? So any books that have really changed the way you think in the last one year that you would like to recommend? Yeah. You know, I uh, I'm uh, I read uh, Bill Gates' book on how to avoid a climate crisis. I think everybody should read that book. You know, I've been uh, I've been worried about climate, and obviously, you know, it's hard not to be worried. but uh, what this book really made me aware of was the depth of the problem and also what it could take to actually change it and then most interestingly for me especially given my you know passion for sort of innovation and startups and technology you know what a big role that you know innovation will need to play if you're you know if you're going to get you know contain uh, global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees by um, by by 2050 right so so i would say uh that's a book that i that i really i would strongly recommend it i mean somebody gifted it to me so i started reading it mm-hmm. uh, on a sunday morning by sunday end of day i was done so it's a easy one day read if you just read for 7 8 hours straight mm-hmm. uh, and, and by the way after doing that um i i signed up over the summer harish uh, for uh, this 12 week online course on climate uh, from a startup called terra.do t r t e r r a dot do yeah anshuman's company right and and uh, i must say it's been the best thing that i've done in a long time because you know over 12 weeks i was really able to go very very deep into you know what drives climate and then climate solutions and also just being a part of a cohort that is super super cool so for us global cohort people from all over the world 
Uh, and it's, it's entirely online. It takes maybe three, four hours a week. And then you can make as much. You can spend 10 hours a week if you want to. But, you know, you should be able to commit three, four hours a week. So anyway, it's, it's more than just a book. But that book then led to uh, Terra. And then, you know, now I'm sort of thinking about, you know, what, what, what more can I do uh, to kind of be a part of this climate movement? Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, last question, Rajan. Uh, you have a billboard in the busiest intersection of the busiest city in the world. One sentence message for everybody. What does that mean? Sorry, what's the billboard? You you want to send out a message to the entire world. One sentence that you want to say. One sentence. Oh, interesting. Uh, look, life is uh, full of challenges and setbacks. Hmm. Embrace it. Beautiful. Wonderful way to end. Thank you, Rajan, for your time. Thanks, Arish. Great to see you.